Okay, so we're going to have two question and answers sessions today. Um, this morning's session is in English, and this afternoon's session is in Thai. Um, <clears throat> in this English session, um, if you are not comfortable in asking a question in English, you can ask in Thai. But I will reply in English. Okay. So if anybody just wants to put up their hand and ask a question, then you can do that as well. But if you prefer to write your question down, then there is uh, paper and pens available. There are. Okay, so this is um, this question is both languages, um, and the the question is how valid um, does this statement hold? Konmeru yomipit. Okay, okay. Let's have a vote on this first. Who? What do we think? Konmeru yomipit. Who agrees with that statement? Okay, the question is, um, if you don't know that something's, yeah, if you don't know what something is or what you're doing, then you can't be wrong or you can't be guilty or you can't be held responsible. You agree? Okay. Anybody else agree? Okay, well, I'll, um, I'll give my opinion and then we'll see what um, everyone else thinks. Um, there is a saying in English, um, which you may be familiar with, which is ignorance is bliss. Um, sometimes, uh, you can, um, maintain a sense of well-being by closing your eyes or not um, finding out the truth about something, just preferring to keep in the dark because you don't want to know the answer. But um, in the, the, the area of ethics or morality or questions of right and wrong, then we have to start right at the very um, beginning and make sure that we all have the same understanding of what those words mean. Because this is often a cause of confusion, very often with the most um, common words that we all know very well, like good and bad and right and wrong and all these words. And we can easily assume that we're all using those words in the same way, but often we're not, and we can have a lot of unnecessary arguments because of that. So in, in Buddhism, um, we have like the ultimate goal of Nibbana, and Nibbana or Nipan means a complete freedom 
from all suffering and all the causes of suffering. And one who has reached that state of Nipan, and that can be someone who's still alive, um, is someone whose actions are motivated by wisdom and compassion and inner peace. So we take the highest goal um, as our base for making decisions about what is good and bad and right and wrong. So most simply we say anything which takes us even a step closer to Nibbana is good. And anything that takes us even a step away from it is bad. It doesn't have to be really awful or evil, but it means you're moving away from the goal. So any action which is results from an intention affected by greed and hatred and delusion is we call akuson or akusala or unwholesome. And because if you have an unwholesome intention and you act upon it, then you make, by acting upon it, you make it stronger. You make it more likely that it will occur again. You strengthen it. So this is what we call bad kamma. Uh, bad kamma means when you, uh, you have an intention, um, which is, um, which is affected by, which includes greed, hatred, delusion, or kilesa, or gilet, you act upon it. Whereas if you have an intention which is uh, arises from kindness, compassion, integrity, um, and all these wholesome qualities, then we can call that good karma, or just goodness. So how you... Um, understand the meaning of an action does obviously have um, an effect for instance if you if you think that say fishing um, it's just a sport you know it's not it's just good fun and you don't mean to hurt the fish, or maybe you, you even think that fish don't feel pain or something like this, but it's just a good day out to go and catch some fish. Then you could say, you don't know. You don't know the truth. The truth is um, that you are uh, acting with the intention to kill, the intention to harm. Even if you don't have the intention to be cruel, you still have the intention to kill. And that intention um, is meaningful because it is kamma. Okay. So that whether or not you believe that this is um, ethically significant or meaningful does not mean that you don't receive the kamma. 
and uh, we could look at other religions in which um, some religions, as you know, um, teach that if you kill somebody uh, for your religion, then it's a good thing, um, or to protect your religion, or to persuade other people to change their religion. In other words, if you act violently, cruelly, you kill, but it's not for you personally, it's for your religion, then there's, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. So, um, as Buddhists, we would say that's misguided. And um, in the technical term in Buddhism for this is michatiti. And the Buddha said that um, michatiti is the most frightening or the most um, dangerous thing of all. Because if you, if you think that something bad is good, then you, you have no restraint. Why would you stop? You just, you just do it as much as you can because you think it's good. So, um, you know, in, <clears throat> of course, in the case that you, you've never been exposed to, you never had opportunity to, um, understand the truth. You say you're living in a, um, a very strict religious community which forbids you from ever reading any um, wisdom from any other tradition or any other religion, and you're like brainwashed from a child, then the karma that you create um, would be a lot less um, in that um, you know you've, you've had very, very little um, choice in the matter, but nevertheless, if you rejoice and you really enjoy doing this thing, even though um, you know it's been taught to you since you're a child, then you still have to take responsibility for that. Um, so, in certain cases, also, um, and I think this this holds true in the law. There are certain cases where it's your responsibility to find out. You know, you can't say, I didn't know. Well, you should know. And that's, you know, you can't just um, um, take that as an excuse. So my, my summary is that I don't agree with this, um, this idea that not knowing um, prevents you from um, doing something wrong or from creating bad karma. Does anyone else have anything to add to, to that? Any objection to this phrase that I didn't mention? You speak up. Okay. Uh, this is another uh, dual language question. What is Soksam Yang Lon? So that's uh, for those of you who don't know the um, the chanting very well. That's a, a line in the dedication of merit um, chant. Uh, 
the Imina Punya chant, which we chanted last night. So Suk Sam Yang, um, the, uh, the Buddha talked about three kinds um, of, of happiness that we can experience or that we should aspire to. And the first kind of happiness is just like everyday happiness that everyone wants to have a um, economic security, to have a good job, to have status, to have a family and loved ones and uh, success in the world, or to the, the normal kinds of um, happiness that people generally uh, would wish for themselves and those around them. The, the second um, kind of of happiness um, is, you know, there are two ways, um, and, and there is a word in 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 Pali language is para para, and and so that can be translated in two ways. It can either mean in future, or it can mean uh, it, it means sort of. Um, you know, apart or outside, but it can either mean sometime in the future or else on a higher level. So there are two ways of explaining this second kind of happiness. One is that you are not neglecting um, your happiness in the next life because we, we, we're not born just one, one time. It's just not just a one-off thing. Um, and uh, many people trade off. You know, they can be very um, um, dishonest and and um, uh, heedless and foolish, and experience quite a lot of success in the world and be rich and wealthy. And but then uh, after they die, um, it's very difficult for them to um, get a good rebirth. Um, and they often have very painful um, rebirths in a lower realm as an animal or as a hungry ghost or in a hell realm. And so they are, in other words, trading, you know, like 20, 30 years of pleasure in this life um, and giving up the pleasures and happiness in the next life and lives afterwards. So... Uh, one way of explaining this second kind of happiness is always bearing in mind um, that um, this isn't the only life and that we also need to be creating the causes and conditions to be able to experience happiness in present future life. But another um, more immediate way of explaining this second kind of happiness is just the the kind of happiness that comes from um, leading a good life, the happiness that comes from kindness and generosity, helping other people, um, <clears throat> doing good deeds, uh, leading a moral life, that kind of pleasure and happiness that comes from not um, harming others, not hurting others, being able to set boundaries for yourself and live within them. And then the the uh, the happiness of um, meditation and inner peace and being able to let go of all the negative mental states that cause you suffering. And then the third kind of happiness, that's the ultimate happiness, 
um, of um, enlightenment and nibbana, uh, where you have uh, no more suffering because the, you've eliminated, you've abandoned all the causes of suffering. So this is a kind of a blessing for Hai Suk Sam Yang Lon. It's like, uh, may you experience all three kinds of happiness, you know, to the greatest extent. So this Lon, you know, this is no. Um, so that's just a, like the word Lon at the end is, is just a poetic phrase to, you know, may you have a lot, may you experience them uh, completely. <laughs> um, this question is says, what is the most important quality of a human being and how do we acquire it if we are lacking? Well, I, I generally... Um, speak about the Buddhist teachings um, as a comprehensive or we can say holistic system of education. And so um, looking at Buddhism in this way, um, although we can see certain qualities which are singled out as being especially important, at the same time, um, it's, it's not the case that we can just say, yes, this one quality is the one that we need and uh, the one that uh, we should try to acquire because um, every quality um, is connected to so many other qualities. So if I, I did have to choose one particular quality, then I, I suppose my first choice would be wisdom. But in the development of wisdom, then um, there also has to be a practice of generosity and kindness um, and mindfulness and uh, patience and um, perseverance and so many other qualities before um, wisdom can really function um, in the optimum way. So there are so many different qualities that need to be developed in harmony. We've got a Thai question here. เอ่อเวลานั่งสมาธิแล้วมึนหลับแต่ไม่ค่อยแน่ใจแต่ก็สบายดีอือฮะอือฮะจะแยกแยกออกได้อย่างไรออกปากคุณค่ะอืมโอ
And that gives an indication that the, you know, the essential quality that we're seeking to develop in meditation is that sense of wakefulness, of being awake. Um, now, it's very difficult because um, usually we have so much going on in our mind, so much thinking, that the only time that we really um, experience a slowing down of thinking is um, when we're going to sleep. So it becomes conditioned in our mind that um, less thought means time for bed, time for sleep. And that's such a very deep habit. It takes a long time to uh, to um, go beyond that. So it's very common. Almost everyone who meditates um, finds this, that when they start off, the mind's just like crazy, like say like monkey mind. It's rushing here and rushing there, and you go, wow, you know, it's a, this is impossible. But then if you if you stay with it for a while and keep doing it, and keep bringing your mind back, it starts to get a bit better. But then, just as you, you think, oh, now I'm, now I'm getting somewhere, I'm making some progress, and then it's like a pendulum, and it swings over to the other side, and you get all drowsy and sleepy. And then you get even more depressed, you know, because it's like one thing after another. And this switching back and forward between periods of agitation and so much thinking and then just dull, drowsy mind um, is, you know, one of the great challenges for the new meditator particularly. And it's, um, you know, something which almost everyone has to go through. But there are some things that we can do to um, reduce that problem. One, one is to um, remind ourselves that we're not meditating just to have a kind of feeling of sabai like that, because that that's setting up a very dangerous goal for yourself. If you think you know what um, peace or kwam sangop is, and you think it's just not thinking, um, then you just go into this very blurry uh, kind of um, hypnotic state because um, samadhi is not just not thinking or not um, agitation, not agitated, but there has to be this very clear, sharp, bright awareness in your mind. So that's, that's your indicator of whether or not um, this has been a um, samadhi or just um, a dull state. It's, if you go into that dull state, it's just like having a nap, you know, like a power nap, if you like. You know, you afterwards you wake up, you feel quite good. You feel refreshed in the sense that, you know, just like you would if you just nodded off for five minutes. Um, but the difference um, is that if it's been samadhi, you know, you feel different afterwards. And sometimes the effect of it can last for hours even. Um, and your experience um, of people around you, the, the things that, that are happening 
um, is different, and you become very sensitive um, to beauty and goodness and kindness, um, and you become sensitive to impermanence and change, and um, the mind becomes, you know, it's like you you've gone into like from. You know, like from uh, a very old TV, you know, gone into like super HD, high definition, you know. But, and, but if you've just gone into that dull, sleepy, you come out and you're exactly the same as you were before you went in. Um, but samadhi has this purifying effect on the mind. Um, and that's, that's why it's such an important foundation for wisdom. Because it gives you the, the strength and the clarity of mind, um, which enables you to see things more clearly. Um. อ่าดิฉันเพิ่งเลิกกับคนรักได้ให้อภัยเขาแล้วเอ่อแต่ชอบมีความคิดไม่ดีโอ้คุณมาเกี่ยวกับเรื่องราวในอดีตคุณทำ
of the Buddha is simply to recognize a thought or a memory as a thought, as a memory. That's all you have to do. So it comes up into your mind. You don't grasp onto it and you don't push it away. You just see it. Oh, there's a sad thought or there's, a, there's another memory. And it's something that is happening in the present moment. It's a mental state which has a beginning and has an end. And if you don't react to it emotionally, either with grasping onto it or rejecting it or fighting against it or feeling oppressed by it, you're just simply very calm and just, oh, here it comes again. It, it's like an echo, an echo of something that's gone. And each time that that thought or that memory arises and you receive it in that calm way, without adding on to it, without fighting it, it becomes a little bit weaker. And it, and it gradually, gradually fades away because you don't feed it. So there are two ways of feeding these like poisonous thoughts or unhappy thoughts. One way is just to follow it and just boom, bang, you know, and just go on and on and on, daydreaming. And the other way is to fight with it or reject it. So the purification and the freedom from it is just seeing that all it is, is just like an echo. It's just like a footprint. It's just like something that's stuck in your memory. Um, and if you feed it, it'll stay a long time. If you don't feed it, it'll gradually fade away. But you have to be patient because um, these kinds of thoughts are not going to go away overnight. Um, if it's someone you've loved for a long time or it's a very strong feeling, then it's going to take some time. It's like you have a, um, a wound that you have, you know, before it'll heal and scar, then take some time. Um, what you, what you do is you keep your, if you have a wound, you keep it clean. You can't just say, go away. I, I don't want to have that cut on my arm or on my heart anymore, but it's, you have to, um, allow it to heal in a natural way. <clears throat> okay. Uh, my question is about being dependent on daily chanting and meditation to maintain basic happiness. For example, recently when I was traveling and not able to follow regular practice in the mornings, the defilements pretty quickly took over. Yes, it is... Um, uh, really important to to find ways of maintaining that basic practice even when uh, it's not so easy to do so um, even when you're traveling and it's not so convenient 
Um, it, you know, sometimes certain sacrifices uh, have to be made, like sleeping a little bit less and getting up a little bit early in the morning or consciously um, taking this need for period of quiet and reflection um, as an important part of a daily schedule. Um, but usually, even if there's a lot going on, um, you can always find a little time um, early in the morning, perhaps before everyone else has got up or late at night. Um, but there are also um, many other kinds of practice that we can do during the day. Um, for instance, walking around, um, just a few minutes here and a few minutes there of walking mindfully uh, or sitting, sometimes just doing a, like a 60-second, a one-minute or two-minute um, meditation just to recharge your batteries and reestablish your mindfulness. So it doesn't mean that you have to you know, find half an hour or an hour during the day if that's sometimes that may not be possible. But even when there's a lot going on, just to sit quietly and watch your breath for a minute or two minutes, and you, it's very refreshing, and you think, yeah, I'm ready to go again, start again. And it helps you to um, uh, prevent this gradual accumulation of, of stress during the day. Because usually there, there's, there's, in most days, there's not really big stressful things going on, but there tend to be a lot of small stressful things. And they accumulate over the day and they add up and they add up. So by the end of the day, you feel really stressed out. So to prevent that happening, if you can just be stopping every hour or two and just um, a, a minute or two minutes just to come back and relax your body, and just breathe in, breathe out, be mindful. Um, and that, um, that is, um, practical, I think. Um, and it means that when you do have time to meditate, it's like you have a sense of continuity. Um, and that even though you've had a busy day, you can still, um, come back to the meditation quite easily. Okay, we have another. Um, this regards the the first question about meru um, Without intention, does it make the person less guilty for the crime committed? Is the action or karma less meaningful? Well, um, you see, when we talk about intention or jetana in Buddhist teaching, Buddhist psychology, then what we mean is, um, let's say, um, let's say the case that, uh, um, let me see, what would be an example? Let's say, um, let's say somebody believes that this person is uh, like an uh, evil terrorist, and he, if he gets out of Banbun, he's going to go to Bangkok, 
and he's going to detonate a dirty bomb and kill thousands and thousands of people. Okay. And, and so somebody says, I got to stop him. Okay. And he thinks it's so important. He kills him and he kills him and he thinks he's a hero because he saved thousands of lives. Mm. So you can say his intention. Now, a normal way of saying was his intention was to kill this evil person. And he did it for a very noble reason. But in Buddhist psychology, um, that's not the intention. The intention is to kill another human being. That's the karma, karmically uh, important intention. Is there the intention to kill? Is there the effort to kill? Does the person die? Those are the three things. Or even uh, if you don't kill um, directly, if you get someone else to kill for you. Yeah. So um, your reason for killing um, is something which will determine how heavy the karma is, but not whether the bad karma has been created. Because the intention to kill Acting upon that intention, um, leading to the death of another person, that's already very heavy kamma, whatever the reason for it might be. So there's always intention, um, except, uh, of course, in the case of an accident. If um, you're driving your car and then somebody rushes out in front of the car and you don't have time to brake uh, and they die, then you have not created any karma, assuming that you were driving within the speed limit and you were careful um, and you weren't drunk or anything, then um, there's no karma because there was no intention to hurt that person and there need be no guilt felt about it either just sadness that such a thing should happen. I work in sales. My co-workers like to buy red Fanta and place it next to a statue, then recite a passage. They say it helps with closing deals. They do it every day. My question is, does that work? <laughs> is there a spirit out there that can help us salespeople to close deals, or is it just superstitious? Is there a spirit out there? Wouldn't the spirit want something else besides Red Fanta? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, this, this is always the, you know, the um, question, isn't it? You know, well, you know, you close this many deals with Red Fanta, you know, what would you 
how many would you close with Sprite or <laughs> Diet Coke, you know? Um, no, the, you know, the, the way that the superstition works is that it's always open-ended, that you can never prove. You know, you say, well, um, you, know, you say if, if you um, put the red fanta there and you recite the passage and you close deals, then, um, well, you didn't close every deal, did you? Maybe you closed 70% of deals. Um, but why didn't you close a hundred percent? And then someone who really believes would say, well, if we didn't, um, put the red fanta there, we wouldn't have got 70%. Uh, you see? So there's always a way out, you know, and a logical way when someone's superstitious, you know, and, and, and this is when people say, oh, I prayed to God and I got this and, and uh, before my life was terrible and then when I did this and then, you know, every every religious tradition, you know, there there are people with these beliefs. Um, but you know, it, it is possible to um, to run a scientific experiment. You know, if but people are usually not willing to do this. Um, but you know, if you say to your coworkers, "Okay, let's let's give this a try. Let's um, let's do a month of." Um, red Fanta, uh, a month of um, uh, aura, bottle of water, and a month of nothing. And let's see um, the effect on, on sales. Um, is it a significant difference? If there's a significant difference, then whether or not we believe it or, you know, why the reason, well, okay, go for it. Um, but I think that... You know that um, it is worth trying to come up with some way of deciding whether or not um, these things are are significant, because superstitions grow up so easily um, because people don't really investigate uh, causes conditions. Like, for instance, if you um, if you have a strong belief in something. Then that is, you know, there, there now there are people who say you just got to believe, you know, you can do anything if you just believe in yourself. I believe in you. You know, you got to believe in you, and then you can do it. You know, uh, which to me is rubbish. You know, it's, it's just, uh, I, I mean, it's pathetic. Um, I, I mean, it, it's just surely it's obvious. Um, so I uh, I remember one year in Ubon, the uh, the director, the Puam Noikan of the hospital, he got really inspired with this book called The Secret. Do you ever you see that book? Silly book. And um, um, and so he gave a copy to all the doctors for you know, like New Year's present. So so he was telling me, you just got to believe. I said. Okay, so let's say all of the doctors, um, they decide they want to be the Puam Nuekahan. Yeah, yeah. Does that mean all of the doctors in Ubon Hospital can be the Puam Nuekahan? Well, obviously. I mean, it's just so obviously ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, if you, all the, the things that people want, um, are always less than the number of people who want them. 
you know. And, and so how can everyone always uh, be number one just because they want something? But once you have that idea, then, you, again, you can always twist it where you say, well, I really wanted this and I never got it. You know, I really believed in myself. But, yeah, but you didn't believe in yourself enough. Yeah, you've got to believe in yourself more than that. You see, so there's always a way of, of twisting these things, and and superstitions um, survive, um, and so, um, like in 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 Ubon, you know, um, in Isan, where monks give talks, you know, often they um, uh, they they listen for the lottery number. Okay, so. And if you give talks on regular basis, you, you know, it's pretty sure you get a reputation for giving the good lottery number. Why? Because if you have like 200 people, um, uh, getting a lottery number from your talk, you know, the, the, the statistic, you know, it's just logical that at least one person every week will win. And they'll say they won because they listened to a talk from Ajahn Jayasara, you see. There's another um, really – does anybody know this uh, guy in England called Darren Brown? Do you know who Darren Brown is? Some of you in England. Well, he's, he's really, uh, really good. Anyway, he did this, this thing where um, – I'm not sure of the numbers, but I'll give you this. Um, let's start off with a really big number. Let's say um, a million people, Okay. And you send an anonymous email to everyone of these people. And you say, uh, tomorrow there's a horse race, two o'clock, new market. Um, and I want to tell you that this horse is going to win. And so let's say you have a million people and there are five horses in the race. So you, 200,000 people, you say horse number one wins. 200,000 people, you say horse number two wins. 200,000. So at the end of the race, sure thing, 200,000 people are going to think, wow, that's incredible. He forecasts the horse. How did he do that? Ajahn Jayasara, wow, really special. So let's see, it's me doing it. I wouldn't, but I'll tell you. So now, a week later, I send another email to these 200,000 people and I say, okay, you know, I really want to help you. I've got so much metta for you. I want you to do well. Um, tomorrow there's another horse race, two o'clock in Newmarket. And so these 200,000 people, I divide them into five groups again. And group one, I say horse number one's going to win. Group two, horse two. Group three, horse three. And so 40,000 people are now really inspired because I've somehow I've forecast their right horse in two races in a run. So now next week, I say 40,000 people. I say, I'm going to tell you the right horse again. Go for it. And I divide them into five and I give them a horse. So one-fifth of those. So you keep going like this until you've got like a small group of people. And, wow, look, this isn't superstition. Look, you just tell me how this is possible. Six weeks in a row, you know, he's, he's, uh, told me the right horse. How is that, how is that possible? You know, so this is the way these kind of beliefs, um, grow up. There's also a, a story, 
um, in a Japanese Zen monastery where the abbot of the monastery had a cat. And, and when he, um, when he would go into the meditation hall, um, to lead the meditation, chanting meditation, the cat in his room was like scratching at the door and, um, annoy everyone. So, um, the monks got together and they said, look, we've got to do something about this. Uh, we're going to have to have the cat come into the meditation. So where, where are we going to put the, well, it's the abbot's cat, his special cat. Um, so they made a very special cushion for the cat. And so, um, after a while, they studied somebody who a monk would walk in behind the abbot with this cushion and the cat sit on the cushion. And they put the cushion down. And, and cause it's Zen, they do it in this very beautiful, uh, elegant way. And it becomes more and more of a ceremonial thing. You know, you have a competition. Who's going to be the monk that carries the cat? You know, and it's, um, special, um, favor. And, uh, of course, time goes on. And, um, the, the reason, uh, for the cat, coming in with the abba is forgotten because all the monks were there. They've gone their different ways. Um, and the abbot dies. And so they keep carrying the cat in and it becomes this thing in our monastery. This is what we do. You know, when the abbot sits down then the cats, you know, and then, you know, the cat dies and they get another cat. Um, and after like a hundred years, you know, this becomes, you know, like a really kind of holy ritual. You know, this is, and if we didn't do this, terrible things would happen. So this is the other thing that superstition plays upon, fear. You see, this is, yeah, maybe, you know, I don't really believe about this red Fanta bit, you know, but, you know, better safe than sorry, you know, because who knows what, Fanta doesn't cost very much, you know, it's not a big deal and, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to, um, lop loo, you know, and then, and then lose my job because they're not making any sales. And so there's desire, there's fear, there's, you know, all is so superstition is, is really important to understand. And, um, you know, and there's a lot of superstition in religions. Um, and, um, it's something we always have to be very wary of. But as, uh, you know, there is this, um, uh, very, uh, beautiful Thai idiom we have is, and that's, um, that's like classic Thai culture, something very, to be very proud of because there are very few cultures that are mature enough to have that idea out there in the culture. Um, in most cultures, you know, if you don't believe what the majority believe, then you're like wicked and bad and you have to be sorted out. So Thailand's always been a very tolerant um, society. There's something that we need to really treasure and uphold. But um, at the same time, when there are, um, it is possible to put something to the test. You like say, Chan, okay, if you're really, um, really so convinced, you know, let's try it. Do it just for a period and see whether there's any real effect on sales. But um, let's say 
if you going back to the point about the secret, it's not that you you're successful because you believe, but when you believe, you just tend to have a lot more energy and you put a lot more into something. If you think that something is definitely going to happen, then you're that much more intent on it. You put that much more energy in that. Is this going to work? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Can't really be bothered. It's such a uh, hassle. So, is pray, praying and and uh, ceremonies and superstitions. Um, if we look in terms of psychology, the psychology of it is that it gives you a lot of energy, and it's the energy, um, if anything, which is the um, the uh, active factor. Okay, I think that's. I think that's all the questions. Oh. That's one. Okay, this is a, a good one. Uh, is Tang Sai Glang, um, and that's, we translate that as the middle way. Is the middle way or Tang Sai Glang the same for everyone? Is it subjective or objective? Um, well, there's a, there was a, a famous example. Um, or, or story about Ajahn Chah, um, and he was uh, sitting uh, underneath his kuti and answering questions. And someone said to him, "You seem very uh, inconsistent. You don't give the same answers. You know, one person you you tell them to." Um, push and push and someone else you tell them to relax and, and so on. And uh, it doesn't seem any, uh, clear cut path that you're teaching. And he said, no, that's not, that's not the case. He said, it's as if there is a road or a path and I see someone and they're, they're getting lost. They're going to make a left turn off the path. So I shout out, go right, go right. And then someone else is getting lost and they're going off on the right side. And I say, go left, go left. So for someone who doesn't understand the path, they say, oh, this teacher, you know, don't understand what he's teaching. Sometimes he says right, sometimes he says left. But for the teacher who sees the path, what he's doing is he's making corrections and keeping people on on the path which he sees, so the the middle path is not um, the same for everyone, and it's not the same for one person all the time, because you can get um, periods where you get very lazy, um, and then you have to put some extra effort and. If someone was looking from outside, they might say, oh, you know, he's far too strict. You know, that's not the middle way. That's just over the top. 
But in that person's, uh, on that person's path, that short period of like special effort, um, is bringing them back to like the, the balance that they need. Or someone else maybe has been too strict, too, too tough on themselves and they need a period of more relaxation. Um, and then that too, for someone who doesn't know the whole story, just looking at a very short period of time, they might say that person's uh, lost it and his person's not trying anymore. Um, but the, you know, the middle path is, uh, I think the best way to, to have some idea of it, um, when you're, when you're practicing, um, is through an analogy. Now, if you've played any, uh, sport in, let's say, a um, tennis or something or golf or whatever, in which you, you play someone who's just a bit better than you are. It's like the best game, I think. You know, if you play with someone who's so much better than you, you know, it's just really depressing. And if you play someone and you're much better than they are, it's no fun. But if you play someone uh, who's just a bit better than you, you find yourself improving. You find yourself having to push yourself um, because it's just a bit further than you've gone. It's just a, it's just a stretch. So that, that sense of just stretching yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone, that, that's a good um, idea of the, the middle path. So uh, it's, I would say, is it subjective or objective? Well, there is a path, and, and um, your sense of whether you're on it or not is not really reliable, um, but that there are certain um, signs that you can observe. จิตสัมพันธ์กับสมองอย่างไรจิตสังสมองสมองคือจิตสมองเป็นส่วนหนึ่งของร่างกายที่เราไม่ได้เป็นเจ้าของอย่างแท้จริงสมองเป็นส่
does consciousness arise from chemicals? Um, so this is uh, for a scientific for a scientific theory. This is a serious objection. Um, it's it is more or less a belief. Um, the other thing is that um, you know every now and again you hear about um, scientific experiments where they they say this part of the brain um, 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 is lights up or. Um, is active when you have this feeling or when you're thinking. And the idea is that you can map all of your experience onto brain function. Um, in fact, it's so far away from that, it's, um, it's almost, uh, almost dishonest, I would say. And, and, um, one analogy. Uh, given is it's as if you were standing out on the road um, and you were looking at a big uh, like a um, a multi-story building and you could see all these lights going on and off in the multi-story building like on the fifth floor and the sixth floor and the seventh floor and then you could say well yeah um, you know there's that lights on in the sixth floor all the time and um, that's probably the place where they have the board meetings and this and you know it's it's um, it's very imprecise. The other thing is that um, in experiments they've done not on human beings um, but on um, I can't remember whether it's flies or rats or something, uh, but they found that um, if you um, stimulate say, some part of the brain, then maybe there is some emotion. Hmm. So you would say, okay, that means that that emotion arises because of that brain or that brain chemical. But then on another time, another occasion, you stimulate the same area of the brain and something else happens. Or you can stimulate another part of the brain and that same thing happens. You see, it's not cause and effect because the same brain area can give rise to different results and different brain areas can give rise to the same results. Okay, so this is, uh, you know, this is a very big topic, but um, what I'm trying to do here is to say that um, it's not proven at all, at all, that the mind is merely a function or an expression of brain chemicals. But we know that um, giving people drugs which affect brain function affect personality or affect what we call the mind. So there is a connection. But there is also um, the, 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 the fact that if you affect the mind, you affect the chemicals. So it's not just a, a one-way street, it's a two-way street. Uh, because there's something they have discovered called brain plasticity. Plasticity means that something can change, it can move. And so you can affect the function, the structure of the brain, 
the chemicals of the brain by how you think or how you use your mind. So if you meditate on a regular basis, uh, not only are you training your mind, you're changing your brain. So there are measurable differences in brain structure and brain function um, in long-term meditators. Um, you can look some of this work up on the net, um, particularly work done in America um, with uh, Tibetan monks who you know, meditating, hooked up to MRI machines um, over and uh, very long-term meditators um, being involved in various um, programs. So it seems, you know, when someone has some kind of mental problem, you know, and they say, oh, you know, it's just uh, chemicals, and, you know, you, and so you've got to take a pill, that really seems like common sense, doesn't it, you know? Um, and it does work sometimes, like from bipolar um, uh, people and taking lithium and, and so on. It helps. Um, but let's take the case of depression. Now, depression can be seen as a um, brain chemical problem, but the um, research has shown very clearly the past few years that the most effective treatment for chronic depression is what's called um, MBCT. And MBCT uh, is um, an acronym for Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy. So this is uh, like a talking therapy and one, uh, one which is based, uh, is, has um, borrowed Buddhist mindfulness techniques because the underlying, main underlying cause of chronic depression uh, tends to be certain like poisonous ideas in your mind, um, certain ways of looking at your life and the world. And through mindfulness, you can be taught to recognize these wrong thoughts or poisonous thoughts and let them go. Like you may, you may have grown up since you were a kid, um, thinking that you're bad or hopeless or, um, nobody loves you or you can't do anything. Um, and these ideas are so deeply embedded, um, that they are a cause for uh, chronic depression. Now, if you take a drug, you, you're, you can affect the brain chemical. Uh, which is the expression of that, but only as long as you take the drug and not always, even if you take the drug. But by um, looking at the cause of it, you can let go of the cause and the brain chemicals change. So there is a two-way street. Brain, this, uh, injury to the brain affects personality. Um, and affects the, the mind, but the mind and the training of the mind and the state of mind affects the brain. Okay. Awesome.
เนื้อสุนีประเด็นหนึ่งสมองเป็นส่วนหนึ่งของร่างกายที่เราไม่ได้เป็นเจ้าของอย่างแท้จริง Yes, so the the brain is just part of the body, um, and um, one of the things they they've they found uh, recently about the brain is that um, when someone that the bre the death is not a moment. You know, there's not like a moment when you die. You say, "Oh, stop breathing." Or brain function stop now he's dead, but it's a process, and that uh, after someone has been um, pronounced dead, the brain is still functioning at one level for at least another twenty minutes or thirty minutes, um, and they've been able to um, revive people um, now um, based upon the latest um, science, and I'm not very. Um, don't know enough about this to tell you because someone was just telling me about it the other day. But uh, the the essential idea is that um, the moment of death is not actually completely dead. There's still this kind of process going on, which uh, can carry on for quite some time afterwards. Okay, we're almost well. We come around to twelve o'clock. We didn't have a meditation, but. Um, Evidence of reincarnation. So we don't usually um, use the word reincarnation in Buddhism. That's more like the Hindu um, idea. We say rebirth. Um, evidence of reincarnation. Okay. Well, first of all, um, there is um, certainly huge amount of. Um, Material in the Buddhist teachings, as recorded in the Tipitaka Patraipitok, um, and well, I can say, well, that's not really that doesn't that wouldn't really class as as um, evidence for a non-Buddhist. Um, so that that's true, um, but at the same time. The, for 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 a Buddhist at least, um, if we reflect or we, we think about the the fact that all of those teachings that the Buddha gave, uh, which we can put to the test right now in our lives, have proved to be true, then that gives us a lot of confidence. Quite a Reasonable confidence in those teachings that we have not yet uh, been able to prove. So there, there's a lot of weight there. I mean, the, to to give an example, um, you know, the there are various um, theories uh, like in physics and quantum physics um, and mathematics. Which there are only a very few people in the world smart enough to understand, um, and yet um, we, uh, because someone like Einstein or some, because they're um, they in the so many other areas of their studies, they've been proved to be right. 
then there's this trust in them. So that kind of trust in someone who's really at the top of their field um, is um, not unusual and something we can um, agree upon, I think. Um, secondly, there are so many cases, huge number of cases of people who have been able to remember past lives, and not just in Buddhist countries. And there's um, a lot of very rigorous scientific research um, on this. And uh, for anyone who's interested in reading about it, um, the number one authority um, is a Professor Stevenson from the University of Virginia. And he, he just passed away a few years ago now. But he wrote a number of books in which he gathered all the information um, on children from around the world who could remember their past lives. Um, and usually it's children of age of three, four, five, before they go to school and they just become, you know, part of the, their society. Um, then um, it's very common, quite common. And um, the question is, if you don't believe that those are um, true memories, then how do you explain it? Um, it's very difficult to explain in any other way. Then there are people who meditate a lot, and when their mind becomes very calm and clear, then uh, they also um, have memories, uh, can, not uh, not all and not many, but uh, one, a small percentage of people can remember past lives through meditation. And then there are people who remember past lives through hypnosis. So those are the three kinds of evidence. Um, people who remember past lives spontaneously, usually as child, children, people who remember past lives through meditation, and through people who remember past lives through hypnosis. Okay, that's enough for this morning. So uh, I hope you've been able to understand my English. Is uh, uh, everyone more or less fluent, can understand? Uh, um, if there's anything that's not clear and um, you'd like some clarification on, then please ask me again in the afternoon session and I can uh, repeat or uh, expand upon these points uh, in Thai. But for this morning, um, I think we can uh, end at this point and uh, you can go and um, have some lunch. So if you like.